So, a new patron and an interesting new problem. How so? Well, this is one of the patrons we don't usually speak about in the intro, given our strangely capitalist... But cheap. ...system of charging more for a measly appearance in one intro. But we typically refer to the new patrons who don't get star billing by the first letter of their name, and... And... Well, it starts with M. And you're M. So if we start going around congratulating M for patronising the podcast, it sounds very much like some weird... But cheap. Yeah. Insider trading. Hmm. An interesting predicament. There's only one solution to this problem that I can think of. This will be good. What, pray tell, is that? Everyone is to henceforth be known solely as M. Well, it's certainly a solution. And it's the one we're going for. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I'm M, living the high life in Zuhai, and over in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand, it's M, who is still stuck in lockdown. This week, it's another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, one in which we review the paper Conspiracy Theories and Stylos Facts by M, and I know M is going to have some very strident views on this one. Well, that doesn't sound confusing or self-aggrandizing at all. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Today, Dr. M. Denton in Zhuhai, China. Uh, COVID update, still in lockdown. Not much more to say, really. No, no, you did have a, a bumper crop of new cases a few days ago, but now you seem to have gone back to normal case numbers, although I do see that Dr. Bloomfield is predicting there will be somewhat of a surge of about 30 cases in the next few days because of the infectious na- nature of Delta and people basically being in households. Yes, yes, I think it's, it's sort of a given that if one person gets it, then in a couple of days, you're going to see everyone else they live with getting it. So yeah, spike in the numbers. But yeah, no, there was a funny thing. We got down to single digits for one day. There were eight cases a couple of days ago. And then the day after that, there were 45 cases. I don't know how much of that is maybe th- th- there was a bit of a delay one day. So we sort of got most of two days worth in one day. I don't, anyway, point is we're still in lockdown. Um and who the hell knows what's going to happen. Quite frankly, it'll be next week before they make a decision about whether we stay at this level or move down. And there's all this talk about, oh, it's, it's all about the mystery cases, not necessarily the numbers. And and there's there's the epidemiolo- epidemiological uh, considerations and also the, the, the basically human considerations of the fact that if we stay in lockdown too long, people will start acting like dicks anyway. So maybe if we can just persuade people to behave nicely by in the lower one, it will work. I don't know. But Josh... People are already acting like dicks in lockdown because have, you are you are avoiding the biggest b- bit of political news back home. The ACT Party releasing a press release about the end of Britney Spears' conservatorship in the US, which for some reason, a political party in Aotearoa, New Zealand, felt they needed to not only issue a written press release of, but also a video of their leader congratulating Ms Spears for getting out of a toxic relationship with her father. 
apparently the most pressing political news the ACT Party could comment on at this point in time. Right, well, I'm happy to say I missed that completely. I assumed it was satire until mm. I saw the press release and saw the video. Yeah, yeah you'd think so. Anyway, um, we kind of have a lot to get through this week. We have a, a conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre, and as is usual, I started writing this one, thinking, writing up notes, thinking, well, we want to be quick about it, and it's almost a repeat of a paper we've done before, so it'll probably be brief, and then wrote, I think, eight pages of notes on it, although a lot of that is just quotes from the text. So who knows? We'll we'll try to rocket through it a bit quicker, than all, especially since we, we lost half an hour uh, to dodgy internet services and having to change to Zoom and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, uh, but before we get into the main episode, I understand you have a new segment for me about which I know very little. Indeed. You see, I've been thinking a lot recently about how I react to bits of information I find on the internet and the conspiracy theorizing hindbrain that I've developed. And so we've got a new segment of which... We don't have a proper name for it yet, and thus we don't have a proper sting for it yet, but I'm kind of calling it the wordy title Conspiracy Theorizing by the Conspiracy Theory Theorist. I feel there's going to be a much more succinct and sexier mm. way to talk about this. But this is our new irregular segment. It won't be a it won't be a every week occurrence, although actually given the way that my brain works, it'll probably be more often than not. It's going to be a case of me explaining how I can generate conspiracy theories by simply reading things online. So we'll play a sting, which will go in a roundabout here. And at some point, that sting is going to be appropriate for the segment about C, which is, so this is a new segment, which is basically based upon a Facebook conversation I had the other day, in which someone pointed out that there is a new paper that's been published called Oral Sex as Infidelity Detection, which is a paper in evolutionary psychology on how oral sex is a method that may, might have been used to learn about your partner's recent sexual beha behavior. And my immediate thought was, because my brain is filled with smut, is that this is a paper about how you can detect cheating by the process of eat, eating out your partner. And it turns out that is precisely what the paper is about. The idea that oral sex was developed as a way for partners to work out whether their other beloved is being faithful or unfaithful, presumably because by eating out your partner, you go, hmm, you taste a little cummy, and it's not the usual seasoning that I'm used to. Surely that could go the other way. Well, uh, uh, pl please, please, do do expand. Well, I'm, I'm saying it need not... Uh, maybe, sorry, maybe I'm assuming too much. Um, I, I, I assumed you were talking about uh, the, the male-on-female variety, um, but, but perhaps, perhaps I'm being too constrained in my thinking and you're merely talking about it as a general activity which would work for any configuration of genders you choose. So yes, no, 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 I, no I'm, going, I'm going for an explicitly sexist view upon this oh, because my second thought was, hmm, heterosexuals, there's a kind of a tendency in heterosexual relationships for men to not to want to eat out their partners. So amongst it's a stereotype, yes. It is. And I was going, why has that stereotype developed? If it turns out you can use cunnilingus, 
as a method for detecting cheating in your partners. And you were you belong to say a cabal of very unfaithful women, then you would create a culture in which you would discourage men from eating you out because then they would detect just how unfaithful you've been. So this sounds like there's a very, very ancient conspiracy led by women to discourage men from performing cunnilingus on their partners in order to make it all the harder for men to prove out that their spouses are being unfaithful. An ancient conspiracy being run by women to control the world by denying men the pleasure of eating them out. Right. Well, aside from being unnecessarily pornographic, I think then my original point does stand where you could flip the genders and... Uh... And it, it would also work in going in the opposite direction, if you will. Ah, but Josh, what you're missing out here is that we could make a significant amount of coin if we pivot our podcast to be explicitly anti-feminist in nature. Oh, right. Posit a large-scale woke conspiracy being led by women to stop heterosexuals like yourself from eating out your partners. And thus, because of that, we can coin it by getting the Sam Harris's and the Joe Rogan's to interview us on our novel hypothesis supported by papers in evolutionary psychology. I finally found a conspiracy theory backed by junk science, which I can then spread online. Right. I'm thinking our first, e our first episode should be called Lucy Thur, or Why All, All Women Are Satanists. I mean, it's it's a thing that could be done. I'm going to be honest. I have my doubts about this new segment of yours. If this is uh, if this if this is the tenor that it's that it's going to be explicit sexuality <laughs> followed by pivots to men's rights activism, I'm so, really not sure I'm on board with this. So I very much doubt the segment's always going to be as explicitly pornographic or indeed. <laughs> feature the sentence you taste a little coming but at the same time it was my at the same time you, you you carry on as you started yeah. you've set the tone now it's now it's on your on 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 your fate on your immortal soul quite frankly be it that uh we continue but this is this is, the, this is i see this stuff and i immediately go what kind of conspiracy theory could you generate from a paper like this and my first thought was i can see someone going hmm kind of lingus could be used as a way of detecting cheating amongst your partners i'm actually not entirely sure how that would work i think the biology of that bit down there i'm saying that bit down there because of course it applies to a whole bunch of different genders and Different genders have different bits, and you know, there's a it's a confusing mismatch of genitalia down there. I don't want to make any judgments about whose genitalia is interacting with whose other or orifices and the like. But I really don't know that you can necessarily taste your partner's cheating. I think you'd have to have a very developed sommelier approach towards genitalia to be able to then go, hmm your genitals taste ever so slightly different. It's not due to the fact you washed recently. But it is the kind of thing that I end up going, yeah, I read this stuff and I just generate conspiracy theories and now I feel the listeners should hear about them. Although I'm now beginning to feel that you don't think listeners should hear about my pornographic conspiracy theories. You know, 
When I upload these videos to YouTube, there's that option you can tick with, is this video for children? And I'm always like, well, I mean, it's it's not for children, so I'll, I'll tick the no. But this time I will very definitely be ticking the no, this is not for children. <laughs> so uh, fr frankly, you've made my choice a bit easier. So I guess bravo to you. Um, can we move on, please? Yes, we can. Although, yeah, frankly, I think I, I think we're going to go from one frying pan to another for you because we're about to move on to a paper that I kind of feel I've punished you with because you weren't the biggest fan of Curtis Hagen's first paper we looked at a few months ago. And I think the kind of issues you had with that paper are much more evident in this one. And so I'm basically going to sit back and let you talk about a paper that I'm fairly sure you're going to get annoyed with. Let, let's find out. I'll say yes. no more than that. Let's, let's find out sting. after The Sting. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Right, so today we are going to be looking at the paper Conspiracy Theories and Stylized Facts by Curtis Hagen. This was published in the Journal for Peace and Justice Studies, volume 21, number 2, 2011, an issue which I see also contains papers such as Terrorism, Secularism, and the Deaths of Innocence, and one called Why is Torture Wrong? I, I kind of think I would have been interested to see that one, quite frankly. Um, not because I'm, I, I have doubts over whether or not torture is wrong, but um, it'd be interesting to see the articles. Now, yes, as Ian suggested, you may remember that the last paper of Curtis's we looked at was a, rela uh, was a reaction to um, the paper by Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, um, where they basically uh, had, had not, a, not, not, not many kind words to say about conspiracy theories in general and suggested that the way to combat um, sort of conspiracy theory-generated misinformation was, was possibly to infiltrate conspiracy theory groups and sort of try to steer the narrative your own way by supplying your own alternative reality. And um, uh, Curtis Hagen's uh, first paper uh, was, was, was fairly unequivocal in his opposition to this. And I felt at the time on reading it that while I agreed with his conclusion that Sunstein and Vermeule's conclusion is not really justified, uh, a lot of it did seem to be him taking issue with the fact that they poo-poo 9-11 truth conspiracy theories. Um, and I was never entirely sure if this was a 9-11 truther paper or just a really committed devil's advocate. You did, you did strongly intimate at the time that you did feel that it was 9-11 inside job apologetics. It did, it did feel that way, but... Um, no, so we right, another paper. No, right, so... Okay. Before we even get into the paper, do you feel this paper is more or less 9-11 apologetics than the previous paper? I have to say honestly more, but the, the thing, yeah, uh, uh, just give, giving away the ending a little bit, I think, once again, I am going to agree with the general thrust of this paper, the actual conclusions it reaches, but I, I yeah, I feel that the way it gets there involves an awful lot of, of, of sidetracking into um, what certainly feels a lot like 9-11 trutherism. But anyway, let's, let's get started. So the article, uh, the abstract rather, of the article reads, 
In an article published in the Journal of Political Philosophy, Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule argue that the government and its allies ought to actively undermine groups that espouse conspiracy theories deemed demonstrably false. They propose infiltrating such such groups in order to cure, quote-unquote, conspiracy theorists by treating their, quote-unquote, crippled epistemology with, quote-unquote, cognitive diversity. Their base proposal on analysis of the, quote-unquote, causes of such conspiracy theories, which emphasizes informational and reputational cascades. Some may regard their proposals as outrageous and anti-democratic. I agree. However, in this article, I merely argue... And we have just lost Josh. But has Josh lost me? That is a good question. I am going to see what happens if I do this. See, he, he disagrees with the article. He disagrees with its conclusion. He thinks its conclusions are bad. I mean, the time, but basically, I mean, when your conclusion is we should combat conspiracy theories by conspiring, uh, it's, it doesn't, doesn't inspire confidence. But yes, he thinks that the, the, the way they talk about conspiracy theories is is wrong essentially which is why he um doubts their conclusions so moving into the, the introduction then basically sort of restates the abstract and um then sort of justifies his reaction to them. he he basically his, his justification i think for this paper is that as he states to begin with is that we're not talking about the random musings of some guy on the internet, some obscure academic somewhere. These people are Harvard Law professors, one of whom was, and at the time of this paper was written, still was, um, at that very time, working for Obama and potentially, you know, might, might, even, might even have his ear. And so he finishes out the introduction by saying, so although some people may regard their proposal as too outrageous to merit rebuttal, I agree with Sunstein and Vermeule on one thing. Problematic views ought to be confronted, not ignored. And so particularly given Sunstein's acclaim and position, it is worth explicitly detailing at least some of the falsities and fallacies on which their proposal is based. This is one of those interesting papers where, like you, I have a little bit of an issue with, say, the motivating example here, which is going to be the 9-11 inside job hypothesis, but large-scale agreement with the argument being put forward by Curtis here. And I think it's kind of interesting focusing here on Sunstein's role in the Obama administration, because Sunstein's role in the Obama administration is quite fascinating. It's also allowed him to have quite a lot of cachet in the American political system post-Obama, so it's kind of interesting to keep, keep looking at Sunstein, even if this proposal from 2009 or so is something which never really got acted upon. Although, as we'll also see, one of the examples that Curtis uses towards the end of this paper, which is Operation Northwoods, is a similar example of a proposal that was never acted upon, but we might take to be kind of interesting in its own respect for the sheer fact that it was suggested by people in power, even if it was never enacted by people in power. But we'll get to that example towards the end of this discussion. Let's move on to the definition of, well, the definitions. Definitions of definitions? That seems like a weird way to put it. Let's just move on to the definitions. Definitions indeed, yes. No, so the first actual section of the, the article is simply called Conspiracy Theories, and it starts with definitions as all well good philosophy papers should. Um, I think the only thing that, that, that's that's interesting to note there is that uh, carrying on, I think, from the previous um, the previous paper, Hagen 
does does is is someone who thinks that the term conspiracy theory should not does not apply to the official story. Um, <clears throat> he he thinks that uh, yeah we, we wouldn't he, he sort of says that most people wouldn't call things like um, Saddam Hussein's supposed attempts to conceal weapons of mass destruction a, a conspiracy theory because it was the official story and so on. So he says. Um, Finishes off by saying, roughly following the philosopher Charles Pigden, I think a more accurate description of what is generally called a conspiracy theory is an interpretation of an historical event that runs counter to an official story and suggests that elements within a Western government have behaved in ways that seem particularly egregious. In any case, my critique of Sunstein and Vermeule's proposal does not depend on any particular or precise definition of the phrase, which strikes me as a slightly odd thing to say. And also, I want to point out, I don't think this is actually fair to Charles. So... It is true that in one of Charles's paper, he talks about the way that most people, when they commonly talk about conspiracy theories, are actually talking about theories that suggest Western governments have misbehaved in some way, shape or form. But Charles isn't trying to use that as this is how we should define the term conspiracy theory. He's simply going, look, one of the reasons why people are so against the idea of treating conspiracy theories seriously is that we've been trained from an early age to assume that conspiracy theories about our Western governments are mad, bad, and dangerous. So he's not talking here about definitions. He's talking here about common usage and the way that common usage has been inculcated by the powerful to make people want to resist even thinking about the possibility that conspiracy theories are warranted. So I don't think you can roughly follow Charles here because I don't think Charles is advocating for this definition. Charles is simply explaining, this is one of the rationales as to why people don't treat conspiracy theories seriously. We're told if they're about Western governments, they can't be true. But yes, the Western government bit of it aside, which yeah, does seem like an odd stipulation, the idea that conspiracy theories are uh, by definition opposed to official stories is something we've seen come up on others, although it's something I don't think we've agreed with. But nevertheless, um, uh, the paper refers to work, well, at the time, recent work on conspiracy theories, the, the, the book Conspiracy Theories, the Philosophical Debate that we've looked right through, that issue of episteme that we looked right through. Um, and uh, referring to um, the book Conspiracy Theories, The Philosophical Debate, he says, the bottom line of this work as I read it is that all attempts to explain why conspiracy theories or a definable subset thereof ought to, ought to be dismissed have turned out to be failures. And that sounds about right to me, I think. That's, that's yeah. sort of what we've yeah. been finding time and again, to trying to write them off as a, as a, as a class just doesn't seem to work out. Um, and then it's a bit of sort of scene setting, I think, talks about um, the sorts of dodgy stuff that the US government has done in the past, of, of which there are numerous examples. And yet these are things that were initially perhaps passed off as conspiracy theories, but are now accepted as fact, which is something I thought that always undermines the whole conspiracy theory official story distinction when you can get them turning from one into the other just due to the passage of time. Yeah, I mean, I've always taken that to be a metaphysical issue with the official theory line, which is, yeah, but it turns out what's an official theory is very much dictated by a time slice. The official mm. theory at one time is a conspiracy theory at another, which is why I think that distinction really doesn't do the work that people think it does. But no, I've argued that at length elsewhere. Oh, yes. I think it was David Cody who talked about 
sort to the idea of a cultural context, which kind of um, does get that get around there. But anyway, um, so, so having having said things up, we go into the next section called causes, informational and reputational cascades. So this is where Curtis Hagen is looking at Sunstein and Vermeule's claims that conspiracy theories, even those wacky, demonstrably false ones, um, are nevertheless sort of successful and propagate. And one of the reasons, or some of the reasons they put forward as to why this happens were these informational and reputational cascades. So he says, uh, Sunstein and Vermeule argue that informational cascades in significant measure explain the pervasiveness of demonstrably false conspiracy theories. I'll quote them at length to show how easily such cascades can be applied to explain the success of dubious official stories as well. It is not a phenomenon that has any particular relation to conspiracy theories. Um, as you probably just as a refresher, the informational cascades are those ones where it's, it, essentially, you, you get you get sort of the flow of information where somebody says this, and then other people hear it, and other people hear it, and it sort of gains um, some kind of momentum, even from people further down the track when they weren't possibly aware of the the uh, more suspect origins of it. Um, so what what um, Hagen does here is reprints a couple of paragraphs um, from the original paper where they talk about these informational cascades, uh, crossing out conspiracy and essentially replacing it with official story. And indeed, it does make perfect sense. But um, yeah, you, you can tell the same story regarding informational cascades for both conspiracies theories and official stories. But that's only really an issue if you think that conspiracies are, are necessarily not official stories, which all the people in this paper seem to. Um, but it's that's not, not a point we'd agree with. Um, and then again, then also goes on to co uh, quote David Cody talking about informational cascades and and sort of points out that that, that Cody's um, uh, description of them is much less sort of uh, biased, I guess, uh, in terms of anyone of, of being for or against conspiracy theories. Um, and so. Um, Hagen says, the point is this, while the dynamic that Sunstein and Vermeule describe is undoubtedly real, it cuts both ways. Indeed, it works better as an explanation for the success of questionable official stories. Regarding September 11, some rather strong informational cascades, whether based on accurate information or not, affirming the official story began flowing within the first couple of days and have continued unabated. unabated. Countercurrents, on the other hand, didn't start flowing with any strength for several years. Uh, which, which is, is something that we keep pointing out, the fact that these 9-11 uh, truth type stuff didn't, uh, it took several years after uh, 2001 before we actually started seeing them coming up. Yes, indeed. It's, it's kind of an interesting example here because he's quite right to point out that if you're concerned about informational cascades and, as we'll see, reputational cascades in the next section, then if you're going, oh, no, conspiracy theorists are the kind of people who are succumbing to a kind of pathology of this kind of cascading system, you end up going, but hold on, if the conspiracy, if the major conspiracy theory is about 9-11, that we're concerned about actually start appearing four to five years after the event, then surely it's the official theory which suffers from the problem of the cascade here, because the people who believe the official theory are the ones who are really, really, really downstream from the people who posited and argued for it in the first place. Whilst the new conspiracy theorists about 9-11 who appear three to four years later, they're starting afresh. They don't have an informational cascade to rely upon. They're starting kind of from the basics here. So surely if there's a problem, it's the official theory 
when a new theory comes up, which is the result of an informational cascade in this kind of bad sense. And I think that is a really interesting point here when we start talking about kind of the development and origin of some conspiracy theories. The kind of examples that Sunstein and Vermeule think apply in this case really don't if you've got just a little bit of historical literacy working with you. Mm. So then we turn to reputational cascades, which are uh, you could possibly call the, I, I want to say emperor's new clothes type effect, but maybe that's a little bit too cynical of a take on it, but the, the idea that um, an idea gains momentum because people, some people accept it and other people want to go along with them and um, don't, don't want to seem ignorant or out of the loop or something like that. I mean, we, we do have a nice simple term for this, peer pressure. Peer pressure, yeah. Yep, yeah. Do. I mean, the number of times where people conform to group consensus about, say, whether a film was good or bad will often be, okay, so oh, I, I want to be like that cool guy, Josh, and Josh really likes the film Split se Second, so I'm going to say I like Split Second as well. Now, of course, Josh is quite right to like Split Second. Mm. It is an incredibly good film. And if it turns out you only like it because of Josh's reputation in the community, then you just don't appreciate good films. So, pa, mm. I say, pa. Precisely, I think. What? Anyway, but, but yeah, so talking about the reputational cascades, um, Hagen points out that, again, they work both ways. The, uh, reputational cascades can, can sort of spread pro and anti-conspiracy theory narratives. He gives the case of Professor William Woodward of the University of New Hampshire, um, who took a lot, copped a lot of flack um, uh, when it came out that he was a member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth. Um, he was cr criticised from, from many quarters, um, and then, uh, and then he says, further, I can personally attest as an untenured assistant professor that if I were basing my decision on enhancing or at least not tarnishing my reputation with my colleagues, advocating 9-11 truth would be just about the last thing I would do. Indeed, I have spoken my views on this matter with considerable hesitation and despite the negative effect on my reputation, but doing so risks, which seems to be saying that he is a 9-11 truther, which isn't actually relevant. Um, to the substance of the argument, um, but it does seem to be making more explicit stuff that seemed more implicit in the previous paper. But, but yeah, regardless of that, his point that still does sound reputational cascades can promote the anti-conspiracy theory side just as much as the pro side, and especially in the case of 9-11, which let's not forget that he's not bringing this up out for, for, for nothing, that it was Sunstein and Vermeule's um, main example. Um, in the case of 9-11, the cascades in favour of the official story were in place well before the 9-11 truth theories became prominent, prominent, which, as we say, didn't happen until sort of 2005-2006 after loose change. And I think for you want to look at the origin of 9-11 truth conspiracy theories and, and assuming that loose change was sort of the inciting incident, yeah, the history of that might tell you a bit of uh, quite a bit, but that's not what we're here to look at today. It's something we have looked at before. We've, we've reviewed loose change in the past. Although one thing which I am fascinated by here is if this paper had been written more recently, then a much better example, both for Sunstein and Vermeule and also for Curtis, would be Russiagate, because the reputational cascade stuff on Russiagate is kind of fascinating. You had 
the right-wing information uh, re reputational cascade, which was it was a nothing burger. We should pay no attention to it whatsoever. And then the left-wing one, which is this just shows, you know, that Trump was basically subverted by the Russians, the Russians control our electoral system. And it did seem, or at least does still seem, that people's reaction to the claims in Russiagate are very much based upon adhering to a kind of group norm. If you're on the right, then there was nothing to it whatsoever. If you're on the left, there was a lot to it. And that, of course, gets flipped with the election fraud stuff that we saw in the US election last year, continuing on now, where if you're on the right, there is widespread evidence of electoral fraud, which the left is ignoring. And if you're on the left, then actually the elections were very secure. And whilst there probably were a few small cases of electoral fraud, as you would expect, no, nothing to anywhere near the extent of what the people on the right are claiming. And a lot of that does seem to be based upon reputational cascades. Yeah, yeah reputation seems an odd one because... We, especially as you say, when you have sort of two sides of it, then you you can get cases where people don't care if if putting forward a view tarnishes their reputation amongst their opponents. And in fact, it could be a point of pride that people dislike on the other side dislike them because of their views. But you can so you know, but but there are the cascades exist nevertheless. Um, you can just sort of have competing ones going on at the same time. And I guess the main point of it all is that there's nothing special about conspiracy theories that they um, in particular or, or that they alone uh, are susceptible to being propagated by um, informational or reputational cascades and therefore that's a reason why we shouldn't believe them. So uh, moving on, the next section is entitled Cure Cognitive Infiltration and so now we're looking at Stunstein for Mill's ideas for what should be done about the increasing spread of these conspiracy theories, demonstrably false or not. I, I keep bringing that, that, that was that was the phrase that the previous paper seemed to revolve around, that the idea that Sunstein and Vermeule had referred to um, saying it would be okay to go after these conspiracy theories if they are quote unquote demonstrably false. And part of my issue with the previous paper was that Hagen seemed to be quite incensed that with the idea that anyone would say 9-11 truth theories are demonstrably false. Um, but anyway, but it doesn't actually come up nearly as much in this one. There's another phrase, another phrase that becomes the, uh, the, the, the key word for this one, but we're not there yet. Um, so Hagen says, as an example of a set of theories that are demonstrably false, Sunstein and Vermeule single out counter-narratives regarding the events of September 11, 2001. However, they neither provide a comprehensive proof of this false, false, falsity, granted that would be an unreasonable to expect of them, nor do they point to such, a to such a comprehensive demonstration, a more reasonable expectation. They do provide a limited critique of their own, but not one that inspires confidence in their conclusion or in their thoroughness or impartiality. And yes, certainly in the, in the, in the original paper, some student from you'll kind of take it as read that 9-11 truth conspiracies are, are just nonsense and don't put a lot of effort towards arguing that case, and that seemed to be uh, a large part of, of um, uh, Curtis Hagen's problem with them. Um, but looking at, look at, looking at the issue itself, the idea that this is what they think we should do, we should covertly infiltrate conspiracy theory groups um, and to, in order to try and, and bend them towards our, our way of thinking. 
And he says, in addition to the problem of misdiagnosis, their proposed cure has potentially dangerous side effects. By suggesting that groups who promote views they, views they deem to be demonstrably false ought to be infiltrated, they are implicitly suggesting that members of those groups or others who hold similar views, including me, are not fully persons in the Kantian sense of being autonomous rational agents who are thus ends in themselves, which um, seem like a bit of a leap to saying that they, they, they think they think it's okay to infiltrate our groups means they think we're not fully human. Um, but it does tie into his next point, which is more um, persuasive, where he gives the analogy of the George W. Bush administration's um, policy towards the treatment of detainees. And we can think, you know, all, all, all the Abu Ghraib, all the, all the um, uh, war crimes, essentially, that happened there. Uh, so the paper says, by condoning harsh interrogations, stress positions and such, the Bush administration set the condition in which abuse was a predictable result. This is one of the many reasons that these policies were ill-advised and that the administration bears considerable responsibility for the abuses that occurred, even though the official policy did not, of course, explicitly authorize turning detainees into naked human pyramids or torturing them to death or sodomizing them with broomsticks and so on. How did these outrages happen? dehumanization. Once someone is regarded as less than fully human, it is hard to avoid a feeling of contempt. And contempt plus power, or at least the sense that one is working in the service of authority, leads quickly to abuse, as the Stanford prison experiment so clearly showed. Uh, hasn't that been debunked these yes, days? Isn't it one not, of those reproducibility yeah, problems? Yeah, not, not at the time. Yeah, not, not at the time. time. Yeah. So, so we, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, all, so, I mean, I mean, it's also interesting that he's, he's right about the slippery slope argument mm. here. So... The official Bush administration policy didn't explicitly state you can do these things, but people took the slight permissions they had and ran with them. And so the worry is, well, a kind of cognitive infiltration mechanism or policy as advanced by Sunstein and Vermeule might seem innocuous at first. All we're doing is trying to stop bad conspiracy theories from spreading through the community but we can kind of see where that's going to go, which is, well, you know, this is a bad conspiracy theory, not because it's false, but because there's a loss of trust in our institutions. We should probably do something to try and prevent that as well. And then it's just Stalinistic speech everywhere, mm. or at least a lack or thereof. Indeed, mm. Or indeed uh, the episode we did not too long ago about the podcast Bed of Lies, which um, talked about uh, the police infiltration of left-wing activist groups in England um, in the, in the not-too-distant uh, past, um, where, where, again, the, the officer, these were officers infiltrating these groups, and, and, and on paper... They were there to sort of gather intel to maybe, you know, either either um, find out about action that they were planning on taking so that uh, the authorities could take steps against them or gather dirt on people so that, the, the, you know, that the, there could be ammunition to arrest them or what have you. And But what ended up actually happening was these guys, you know, um, one of them... Uh, entered, in, entered into relationships with women, uh, very serious ones, fathered children in some instances, and in one case sort of formed this full-out abusive relationship where the guy, um, the, the police officer, essentially withdrew this woman from society and, and kept her practically imprisoned um, on the grounds that they were, you know, it was too dangerous for them to be out in, in public and what have you. And it was, yeah, a, a very, very clear illustration of the fact that once you give people some license to do things that are a little bit questionable, uh, give them an inch and they'll take a mile in cases. 
it, it's still, I mean, this this felt a little bit a little bit like sophistry to me, to be honest. The 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 talk of dehumanization when it comes to those prisoners kind of makes sense, but then to say, ah, and look, by by not treating us as as, as fully rational agents, they're, they're they're denying our essential humanity and therefore dehumanizing us as well. That seemed like a little bit of a a little bit of a leap to tie the two together. Although once yes, again, I, I agree, agree with his basic yeah. point. Yeah. No, I I also agree in that I think I think the analogy between there's a slippery slope here of you have policy X, there could be unintended consequences Y. And I think the, the the torture stuff under the Bush administration and the dehumanization of detainees makes sense in that respect. But I don't think the analogy is strict enough to then go, that means we're not going to treat conspiracy theorists as actual human beings. That seems ever so slightly overwrought. Mm. Um, nevertheless, Hagen says that Sunstein and Vermeule need to dehuman, dehumanize uh, these conspiracy theorists to treat them as irrational because, um, to quote, first, the supposition that they believe demonstrably false theories suggests contemptible ignorance or stupidity. Um, and so this, this seems to be a bit of the paper. Hagen is of the opinion that Sunstein and Vermeule are of the opinion that conspiracy theorists are, are, are stupid and beneath contempt. Although, that does seem to go in opposition to the whole informational reputational cascade stuff because I thought the point of that was to say how 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 otherwise rational well-informed people could be drawn down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole by 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 taking part in these cascades so it didn't seem to me that they were saying that these people are, are, are by definition ignorant and stupid I thought it was it was about how do we explain the fact that people who aren't ignorant and stupid can get drawn into this but anyway um, he continues, second, positing irrationality justifies the notion that one must lie about one's identity, since conspiracy theorists are viewed as incapable of evaluating evidence that does not come from their kind, which, I mean, that does seem more fair when you look at sort of the, the, the if, if you're people who are distrustful of the government already, then um, if you're running this line, then that justifies the idea, as Sunstein and Vermeule did, they talked about the idea in, in the original paper, they talk about, do you know, the, the decisions around should you be open about who you are or should you hide your identity? And they kind of thought it would be better to hide. Um, and then finally, continuing the quote, in addition, implicit in the proposal to actively undermine selected groups based on the beliefs they hold and promote is the notion that these groups do not really have a right to free speech and assembly, which again, sounds like a, a bit of a leap. I mean, certainly sounds to me will never say that conspiracy theorists shouldn't have the right to do what they're doing. They just think that given that they are doing it, we should respond in a different way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I the overall sort of conclusion of this section that it's a bit what Sunstein and Vermeule propose is a bad thing because there are dangers of abuse and slippery slopes and so on, I agree with, but I don't know that I'm on board with the, uh, the rhetoric he uses in getting there. But anyway, now we come to the come to the guts of the paper, the section entitled Stylized Facts. And I think stylized facts is this paper's demonstrably false. It's the term that, that um, Hagen picks up on and, and really uh, sinks his teeth into. I don't remember stylized facts being a particularly large part of Sunstein and Vermeule's paper. Um, this one quotes just one section of the original paper where they um, the, where, where Sunstein and Vermeule are quoted as saying, uh, they talk about planting doubts about the theories and stylized facts that circulate within such groups, thereby inducing beneficial cognitive diversity. I don't know if that term stylized facts 
shows up a lot more in that paper, but it sure as hell shows up a lot more in this one. Uh, what is a stylized fact? What, Dr. Dentith, what is a stylized fact? Oh, you got me just as I alt-tabbed over to my database to actually check to see how often the term stylized yeah. fact appears in the original page. So a stylized fact is not always negative in connotation. As Curtis writes, stylized fact can mean a general claim that is widely accepted as true as a result of its in brackets, supposed instantiation in a wide variety of contexts. Its presumed truth then serves to limit interpretations of phenomena. For example, the idea that conspiracy theories are unwarranted is a stylized fact in this sense. So a stylized fact isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's contextualized presumed to, to be true and plays a role in your analysis of other facts within the context of, of those claims. So, yeah, it's the way in which Sunset and Vermeule use stylized facts that Curtis has an issue with, because as he goes on to say, Sunstein and Vermeule offer no explicit example of conspiracy theorists relying on specific stylized facts. So it's hard to know exactly what they are thinking of. Nevertheless, since circulating these, in brackets, unstated stylized facts is apparently taken to be an epistemic sin sufficient to justify government infiltration, I take the phrase to be intended in a negative sense. I will rather loosely treat it as meaning simply a misleading characterization of reality. Yeah. Um, and so now we get to the part of the paper that seems the most sort of polemical, the most... Um... Uh, really putting forward, a, I don't know, an agenda, is that the right word? I mean, it basically seems to be Curtis saying, you know, you're, you're saying, you're saying my facts are stylized facts. No, 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 you're the ones peddling stylized facts here, buddy. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so he, he goes in to talk about, uh, uh, he lists off four stylized facts, which um, he believes Sunstein and Vermeule are actually appealing to, and if stylized facts are bad things, then that shows their, their, their reasoning must be suspect. Before he gets into the section, though, he says, in this part of my discussion, I will not restrict myself to the version of Sunstein and Vermeule's article that was published in the Journal of Political Philosophy, but will include examples from an earlier version of their paper published online. I think this is fair because their issue is their own tendency to, to stylize facts, not whether the peer review process ferreted out all such significant misleading facts, which we will see it did not. Um, there, was, there was a similar, in, in his previous paper, there was at one point reference to not the actual text of their paper, but an earlier draft. Is this, is this kosher to be bringing up drafts? As we discussed last time, I don't think so. I don't think it's appropriate to bring up unpublished versions of papers. Now, admittedly, it's it's a bit of a grey area here because that paper was circulated online, so you can go look. It wasn't published, but it was made publicly available and people read about it. At the same time, I do think if you're going to criticise someone's argument in the academic sense, you criticise what they've actually committed themselves to say in print rather than what they might have put in a draft. Because we all know that in the drafting process, you might end up saying something that a reviewer goes, actually, that's a really, really stupid thing to say, and here's an explanation as to why, and you then change your view. And thus, if you criticise an unpublished paper by saying, weren't they stupid to say this thing? You might go, well, 
Yes, the authors are aware of that. That's why it's not in the published version of the paper. Also, to answer your previous question, how often does the term stylized fact appear in the original published version of Sunstein and Vermeil? It occurs in the one quote which Curtis has provided. Right. Okay. So it is. So by that argument, it's not a particularly major part of their paper. I mean, the word stylized seems to occur, let me just check that, three times, of which one of those instances is the word stylized fact. You also get the example is highly stylized, conspiracy cascades arise through more complex processes, and, oh, actually, sorry, yeah, stylized appears twice of which one instance is, is stylized fact. The word style appears on its own, 1960s style mm. infiltration. So no, it's not a major part of the original discussion. Mm. Anyway, so we, we come to the, the, the section where we enumerate the stylized facts that Sunstein and Vermeule are uh, arresting on. So first is stylized fact number one, conspiracy theories are the stuff of rumor. And this is where, as you mentioned before, we get into Operation Northwoods. Um, so Hagen takes issue with the fact that Sunstein and Vermeule refer to Operation North Northwoods as a rumoured plan by the Department of Defence to simulate acts of terrorism and blame them on Cuba. But um, as we've talked about in the past, it, it wasn't actually rumoured. Like, the, we, we have the documents these days. We know it was actual. This, this was stuff that people actually talked about. And no, they never did it. It all got nixed by Kennedy, wasn't it? Yep. Nevertheless, th these plans were there, and uh, and uh, this paper goes further to say not, not only were they not rumored, they weren't. Uh, it wasn't about simulating acts of terrorism. It was about actually carrying out acts of terrorism. Um, I don't that it was know. all about false flags to a large extent. All about false flags. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. You could be charitable and say that when Sunstein and Vermeule talk about simulating terrorist attacks, they mean they're not that they are simulate they're real attacks, but they're simulated terror attacks because it's it's a false flag, it's not actual terrorism. But I don't know, maybe that, but that's that's a, a fairly fairly pedantic and generous I mean, reading of it. I anyway. get the impression going back to the original paper by Sunstein and Vermeule is that they're going well. This is this document's a little bit awkward because it does show that. No, our government from time to time really does seriously think about doing bad things. Luckily, in this case, they didn't do the bad thing. So we're going to really underplay the bad intentions behind this document by going, well, you know, it's only rumored because they didn't they didn't do it. And we'll we'll downplay the seriousness of the bad things they didn't do by talking about it being a simulated attack, as opposed to you know, if they had actually done it, there'd be no simulation. It wouldn't be a case of a person going to the field going pew pew with their fingers point, pointing at Cubans. It would have been US soldiers with guns firing actual lead bullets into their targets. Mm. And then at this point, there's a, a fairly lengthy quote about um, the fact that Northwoods included a plan to actually fly a plane by remote control and blow it up, which is more detail that needed to be in this paper the, for the purposes of the point he's making, which is that Sunstein and Fabiola are perhaps unjustifiably dismissive of, of conspiracy theories. Um, it, it does it does start to it felt to me like leaning into 9-11 truth theory of, of sort of, you know, this is this is establishing precedent. But nevertheless. It does, it does seem fair to say that um, Sunstein and Vermeule were not 
we're, we're overly um, dismissive of the likes of Operation Northwoods. Then we get to stylize fact number two. This, this is a fact that Sunstein and Vermeule are supposedly putting forward. Clear evidence proves conspiracy theories are false. And this, this is kind of where I lost it a little bit. This is because this one is entirely referring to a bit from the online draft that was taken out completely of the final version. Um, but in that draft, Sunstein and Vermeule wrote, some theorists claimed that no plane hit the Pentagon even after the Department of Defense released video frames showing Flight 77 approaching the building. Now, I've seen those frames that the Department of Defense released, and they, they really don't. There's three flight frames. One shows the side of the building. One shows a blurry shape on the edge of the frame, which could be anything. And then one shows an explosion. So to say that... Um, so to say that those three video frames completely prove that the theories that it wasn't a plane that hit the Pentagon are false isn't really true. But he's not, he's, he, he, he jumps on this particular line, comes back to it multiple times to basically say, look, look at these guys. Look, here they are saying that it's easily, it's, it's been completely disproved, but there's this one bit of evidence is rubbish. And he goes on to it, uh, he sort of go, goes on about this multiple times. And then after, in fact, after sort of saying, this is the bit of evidence they brought up um, and it's not true, um, he, he, he eventually uh, talks about, um, eventually he says, it is positively chilling to think that if I sought to meet with like-minded individuals, our group could be targeted for infiltration if Sunstein and Vermeule get their way. Further, it adds insult to injury for them to use evidence, quote-unquote, as useless as the supposed pictures of Flight 77 approaching the Pentagon to, quote-unquote, demonstrate the falseness of alternative views and thereby justify their deceit, countenancing, anti-democratic and epistemically suspect proposal, which really sounds like he's taking it personally at this stage. He's sort of saying that, yeah, that they, if they had their, their way, they'd be infiltrating my people and they'd be doing it on the back of this of dodgy evidence um now i think i think even in, in the case of flight 77 i think i think it would be fair to say there is a hell of a lot of evidence that disproves any theory that it wasn't a plane that hit the pentagon they, 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 there was photos of wreckage all over the lawn you know the, even somewhere you could see the um the, the the airline logo on the image there is a wealth of eyewitness testimony that it was an airplane and i mean maybe you can say a whole all of these independent um, supposedly independent people were paid off but i don't know but then they even found as i understand it they found the flight recorders of the airplane inside the pentagon i think the the voice recorder was too damaged to be useful, but the other flight recorder one wasn't. But anyway. Although, I mean, in Curtis's defense here, he does say in the paper, he does think that Flight 77 did mm. hit the side of the Pentagon. So his argument is this bit of evidence that Sunstein and Vermeule says shows the theory is demonstrably false isn't on its own particularly good, because you point out it's three frames, it's very vague. It could be a beluga whale crashing into the side of the Pentagon, given the photographic ev ev evidence that we have. It would be weird, though. But yes. I mean, it would be weird, but I mean, weirder things have happened. Mm. Although they have actually is true entirely. But I mean, I think your broader point here is the one which is more salient, which is this example has been removed from the published paper. So I suspect that reviewers went, yeah, this is not a good example because it isn't clear evidence that that conspiracy theory is false. Look at the three frames and point to me exactly where you can show me there is a plane. So 
maybe don't use this example because people are going to react exactly the way Curtis has and say, your evidence that shows the theory is false shows nothing of that sort. And it really does make the argument a lot weaker if you use it, which is presumably the reason why it doesn't appear in the published paper. Mm. I mean, it does, it, it possibly doesn't speak well of Sunstein and Vermeule that they, it, it kind of makes it sound like they didn't really do, they're not possibly not doing their due diligence if they jumped at that one because presumably they'd heard that the Department of Defense had released this and that was case closed when it didn't really do anything. And also because had they bothered, they I reckon they could have found much more convincing evidence that it was a plane, like I just mentioned. So, I mean, as if you want to say that Sunstein and Vermeule are not, um, don't take enough care in coming up with their examples, given given you know the reach of what and the possible implications of what they're proposing, then possibly that's a fair point. But once again, not too happy with the way he got there. But um, moving on to stylized fact number three, which is that infiltration is benign. So he quotes Sunstein and Vermeule as saying, by kind uh, of infiltrative of extremist groups, he says, uh, or they said rather, we do not mean 1960s style infiltration with a review to surveillance, with a view to surveillance and collecting information possibly for use in future prosecutions. Rather, we mean that government efforts might succeed in weakening or even breaking up the epistemological complexes that constitute these networks and groups. Um, and Curtis says of that, this gives the impression that the COINTEL operations of the 50s and 60s were benign and passive, and goes on to quote Catherine Olmsted, which is a name I recognise. Who is Catherine Olmsted? We interviewed her back in the day. There we go. That's why I recognise it. Yeah, uh, university, UC, so, one, so Davis, so I'm, I'm getting the university in California, so it's USC Davis, University of Southern California Davis historian, author of the book Real Enemies, which is a history of political shenanigans in the US over the 20th century. The book is fantastic for showing just how many conspiracies actually did occur in the background of American politics. And yeah, her section on the stuff that was going on in the 50s and 60s is kind of amazing for how did they get away with this stuff? Mm. And yes, yeah, so he, he quotes her basically talking about, yes, all, all the really dodgy stuff they got up to in, in COINTELPRO, which again, we've also looked at in another episode. It, it seemed a little bit odd to take Sunstein and Vermeule saying, you know, we wouldn't want things to be as bad as they were in the 60s, we'd be more benign than that, to then say, so you're saying things weren't bad in the 60s. I mean, it, it is true they do gloss over it fairly quick, you know, they, they don't, they don't certainly in any way go into the de the depths of what did happen in COINTELPRO, which was some deeply, deeply dodgy stuff. He, uh, Curtis finishes a section by saying, had Sunstein and Vermeule given a fuller and more accurate account of the true history of past practices, it would have aroused a sense that great caution is warranted. So instead they stylized. And I mean, yeah, I agree, they, they do, they do gloss over that fairly quickly and, and move on, move past, um, uh, the, the the poor history which pos which could in a in a in another world and another version of this paper have led into more concern about the stuff we talked about before the slippery slope the abuse and so on and so forth but it did seem to be a little bit jarring to read those two quotes side by side anyway last one stylized fact number four conspiracy theorists are ignorant extremists. So here, Curtis again claims that Sunstein and Vermeule put forward a caricature of conspiracy theorists. 
Um, he quotes them saying that conspiracy theorists have little relevant information. Um, and then later they also said of conspiracy theorists that they have skewed information. Um, and then basically uh, argues against this by pointing out there's a whole lot of established scholars and engineers and architects who actually do believe in 9-11 truth. Thank you very much. I would not call them ignorant or, 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 or foolish, would you? Um, which did seem, again, unnecessarily 9-11 truth, truthy-ish, but comes uh, comes to the end of it saying, thus in order to make their proposal palatable, Sunstein and Vermeule need to stylize their depiction of those who question official stories. Indeed, they go to absurd lengths, worrying that their proposed infiltrators might be asked by conspiracy theorists to commit crimes. As suggested by the discussion of the previous stylized fact, it is more likely that the infiltrators will be the ones that end up proposing criminal activity, even if Sunstein and Vermeule don't explicitly advocate this. Um, which seems a fair point. I've, I can't remember, where I, remember where, where I was reading about this, but I remember having people sort of saying in activist type circles, if there's a member of your group, if there's one person who's constantly agitating to be more, to escalate and to, to, to do sort of more semi-legal or illegal things, that person's probably the cop. Indeed, actually, that came out recently with a discussion of da Damien Dement, who's one of the anti-lockdown protesters back home in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who was also encouraging people to meet up in Aotearoa Square and engage in a mass protest against the lockdown in Auckland. And people going, he seems to be really, really keen on people congregating and breaking the public health order around COVID-19 to the point where we know the police have visited him in the past and told him off for his activities. Has he been subverted? Is he now working for the cops to now to encourage people to incriminate themselves by coming to these meetings? Because he's he's sure acting like those weird activists who end up being police informant. Maybe he's one as well. Mm. Uh, he then uh, does make does make the good point that. Basically, yeah, you could say that, okay, some conspiracy theories that are actually dangerous. I mean, we know they are. The, the, the Sunstein Fabio will talk about the Oklahoma bombing and stuff like that. But the point is that you could probably point to any group of people and say, yes, yeah, some of them are actually going to be dangerous individuals who, who, who would countenance doing these actual violent acts. It's not conspiracy theorists in particular as are a group that you are not a group where you can say well they're dangerous it's in, you know it's individual the danger doesn't come from them being conspiracy theorists it comes from something else uh which again i agree with so we come to the conclusion which i think i'll just read the whole thing out in one go and um and and then 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 we can uh put forward our concluding remarks so the conclusion reads the stylization of the above facts is important for the plausibility of Sunstein and Vermeule's argument. One, if they fully acknowledge the history of real conspiracies and of theories that remain plausible if unproven, that would undermine the efficacy of their dismissive rhetorical posture regarding the ill-defined subset of those theories that they believe should be undermined by covert operations. Two, by whitewashing the history of infiltration, they make their proposal seem less obviously problematic. Three, by presenting a caricature of people who espouse so-called conspiracy theories, they treat them as other, something less than human beings not fully capable of reason. Otherwise, a more honest, straightforward, and respectful response would seem more appropriate than infiltration. 
And finally, four, the bogus claim that there are pictures clearly as identifiable as Flight 77 approaching the Pentagon made it possible for them to ridicule conspiracy theorists who continue to believe otherwise. Without recourse to ridicule, Sunstein and Vermeule's responsibility to deal with the relevant evidence in a more sophisticated way would have been more evident. And addressing the evidence in this way would have made establishing the falsity of all theories that suggest insider complicity in 9-11 hopelessly complex. But without establishing the clear falsity of those theories, they could not reasonably frame the members of the so-called 9-11 truth movement as irrational and thus appropriate targets for cognitive infiltration. In the final version of their paper, Sunstein and Vermeule dropped the reference to Flight 77, presumably because it is so easily exposed as false. In the end, they didn't really need to resort to ridicule based on false evidence. The strong bias against conspiracy theories, especially in the academy, evidently seems to make such ridicule unnecessary. It should have been obvious to these law professors that peaceful, law-abiding people ought to be allowed to freely assemble and pursue their inquiries without infiltration. And this applies even to those who promote theories that posit state crimes against democracy, which is what the most dangerous so-called conspiracy theories typically allege. In the interest of peace and justice, all people ought to be allowed to freely assemble and pursue their inquiries without infiltration, even those, or perhaps especially those, who dare to question official narratives. Which sounds fair to me. I mean, I do... I, it seems to be moving off the point a little bit that there are people who we want to be infiltrating. There are the, the, the fella who the other week stabbed some people in, in the shopping mall here in, uh, in, in New Lynn in, in Auckland was being under, was under 24 hour surveillance from the police because they were worried he was going to do something like he ended up doing. But I think, you know, it, it seems like the point that you'd want to be emphasizing here is the one that he made earlier on that it's not them being conspiracy theories that's the worrying thing that means prompts you to want to, to infiltrate and, and, and keep an eye on them. It's, it's other things and suggesting that uh, it's okay to target conspiracy theory groups just because they believe in conspiracies is wrong, which um, I certainly agree with. It is a point that was made during the paper, but it didn't sort of seem to be the thrust of the conclusion. The thrust of the conclusion seemed to be more, again, more about what are these idiots doing suggesting that 9-11 truth conspiracy theories are wrong? I mean, there's another point to be made here, which is that line. It should be, it should have been obvious to these law professors that peaceful law-abiding people ought to be allowed to freely assemble and pursue their inquiries without infiltration. Now, of course, when you're in a government, you're kind of doing risk analysis on a whole bunch of things. And the pandemic is a good example of this. You can assume that people are natural rule adherence. Actually, that sounds wrong. They're the kind of people who walk around naked. They're all about natural rule. You can assume that some people obey the rules and don't need much in the way of coaxing or coercion. And so you have a kind of light hand with your approach towards the pandemic. Or you might assume that actually most people will not obey the rules unless there's a kind of heavy hand. You want there to be some kind of policing, a fine system, police officers being able to give people spot fines, being able to dob people in through phone numbers and the like. And of course, if you're in the security services, you're going, well, there's a whole bunch of people out there with weird views. And most of them might turn out to be peaceful and law-abiding people, but some of them may turn out to be warlike rule breakers. And so we need to do a little bit of infiltration to all of these communities to work out who's good and who's bad. And then we, we keep an eye on the bad people. We don't worry so much about the good pe people. Sunstein and Vermeule are obviously from that camp that's going, we think the risks are too high. 
And thus we need there to be at least some degree of infiltration to keep an eye on these people to see whether they're turning toxic. And that's not an argument then in epistemology. That's an argument then in, say, the ethics of care or the duty of care. You know, How much infiltration or coercion are we going to allow in a system of this particular type? And so there's a kind of weird assumption that these people are peaceful law-abiding citizens who should be allowed to go about doing their business. From the perspective of someone in government, you might go, yeah, but we need to check that. We can't just assume that. We need to do a little bit of vetting because some of these weird views are associated with weird people who do weirdly violent things. And that's not my giving a defense of Sunstein and Vermeule there. This is simply me going, I can see the argument that goes, just because you appear to be peaceful and law-abiding doesn't necessarily mean that all the members of your community are. And if I'm really risk-averse, I need to make sure that if your community looks peaceful and law-abiding, every single member of that community is peaceful and law-abiding, because otherwise I'm going to be keeping an eye on you for quite some time. And certainly you could argue that some conspiracy theories have a history of being used to justify violence. So, for instance, the Great Replacement type conspiracy theories um, justify, were, were, were behind a mass murder here in New Zealand and numerous other acts of violence overseas. So maybe not the fact that they're conspiracy theories, but the fact that they're conspiracy theories which have a history of promoting violence could justify um, the, these people, you know, keeping a closer watch on these people. But Sunstein and Vermeule aren't saying that. They're sort of saying conspiracy theories in and of themselves are something that we need to look at, which... Um, uh, is, is not a valid point, you know, which is something I don't agree with, uh, which means I do agree with the ultimate hmm. conclusion of this paper. But I mean, yeah, uh, again, I feel the same way as I did last time, basically. Yeah. I agree with the conclusions, but a lot of it felt like Curtis being personally offended by Sunstead and Vermeule's arguments and, and annoyed at the fact that they're so dismissive of 9-11 truth theories. I thought the especially the insistence on using their words against them, literally the, the two words stylized facts, um, just kind of bogged things down. Um, each of those segments, each of those, those four segments that talked about a stylized fact that Sunstein and Vermeule um, <clears throat> supposedly relied on did make an okay point, but often it wasn't exactly the point in the heading for one thing um, and, and was all just a little bit uh, bogged down in this in the rhetoric and I, I i do start to feel like a um like like some sort of a black hole was was about to form out of irony or something reading through this given that you basically seem to have sunstein and vermule sort of making unwarranted projecting their preconceptions onto conspiracy theorists to come up with their theories and then this kind of seems to be curtis projecting his preconceptions onto sunstein and vermule to write this paper and now here I am projecting my preconceptions onto Curtis and giving my opinion of it. it uh, I'm not sure whether we're all about to um, uh, disappear into some sort of some sort of uh, implosion vortex type dealy. So maybe I should just stop talking. Well, so I'm just sitting here thinking, and I had a preconception as to how you were going to react to this paper, given your reaction to the previous paper by Curtis. Mm. I mean, my my impression of this is. 
The Sunstein and Vermeule paper is, and this is to use the term that Sunstein and Vermeule use, which is the crippled epistemology term. What cripples their paper in their own terms is their choice of example. 9-11 is actually not a good example for the kind of thing that Sunstein and Vermeule appear to be concerned with. And I think if the paper had been about great replacement conspiracy theorists, then the paper might be taken more charitably. You might go, well, actually, yeah, people who believe these great replacement or great reset conspiracy theories actually do go around engaging in acts of violence and mass murder. I mean, there's a lot of mass shootings in the US, which you can put down to people who have these weird white nationalist, white supremacist views. And you might go, well, these views actually seem to be both disturbing and also correlated with violence here. And we probably don't want that violence. And if we could find some way to change people's hearts and minds, maybe that might be a good infiltration to engage in. Now, I still don't know whether Sunset and Vermeule's argument would actually work, but it would be a better motivating example for the kind of argument they want to present. So I do agree with Curtis, the 9-11 examples here are not good. They're not good for Sunstein and Vermeule's paper. Although I can also see your reaction here, which is, yeah, but you're kind of laboring the point and it's not working in your favor either. Yeah. So there we go. And I did notice, was it in one of the footnotes or... When he talks about, he, he basically mentions a Charles Pigden paper that I didn't, I that, that, whose name I did not recognize. And I was going to ask if that is something that we'll be talking about soon. Oh, have I managed, have I managed not, to skip aim a Charles paper? It's not in the footnotes. Uh, well, surely if you look at the bibliography, you should be able uh, to look so... Pigton, 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 Popper revisited. No, there's only, there is oh, only the one paper. There was, he talks about the very last footnote. He talks about, wilt thou conceal this dark conspiracy from... Oh, I... Yeah. Anyway, so a footnote right at the end of the thing. Not relevant to the current discussion, but it did, uh, I, I, did, I was interested to see a name I recognised and a paper title that I did not. So maybe that's something we'll be looking at in the near future. I think from memory that was a, I think I've got a copy of it somewhere, but I don't think it's ever been published in a journal. No. I think it was a piece that was put up on in those, what would have been the equivalent of academia.edu or Phil Papers back in the day. I will need yes, the to reference is just a link that. to a PDF on the Otago University website. Yes, so I think it was a piece that Charles wrote and was made available after a talk. I don't think it's published work, which is why it hasn't appeared in the series. I do have a copy of it somewhere. I'm just not finding it immediately. Oh, well. Anyway, um... I think we're at the end of an episode. It was uh, a little longer getting to the end of this one, given that you, you you would not have heard, but we had to sit through half an hour of internet difficulties before we managed to get recording this one. So I think let's let's wrap things up. 
and get all the uh, I, 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 I have found the piece that's actually labelled in my database is called Falsehood and Fopley, although the actual title, or the running title is Wilt Thou Conceal the Start Conspiracy. And you know, actually, like I, those quasi, quasi Shakespearean ones. I think from memory, this was actually a letter to the editor that he then published online. Because I think it's a response to yes, it's a it's a response to an article in the Otago Daily Times from two thousand and six. Mm. Well, there we go. Anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna bring this episode to a close, but then go off and record a bonus one for our patrons. What do we have to tell them about this week? Oh, we're gonna talk about the six point plan to steal the 2019... 2019? No, 2020 election. I've just mm. lost all sense. <laughs> After this discussion of a paper, I've lost all sense in time. I mean, maybe mm. they wanted to steal an election back in 2019 as well. I oh, mean, there who must knows? Be one going on. Who but knows? we'll talk about the six-point plan to steal the last US presidential election, thus indexing it to a relative time for the publication of this podcast. And then we're going to talk about why the Vinland map is a fake, which... Mm. People kind of already knew, but now we know for sure. Exactly. Uh, so if you would like to become a patron, now I said this in the bonus episode last week. I don't think I said it in the main episode. If my voice sounds particularly clear and 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 deep and sonorous to you, this this episode and last episode, it's because I'm speaking into a brand new microphone, which I needed to purchase on account of not having access to the old one. And I purchased it with the money given to us by our own blessed patrons. So let me say publicly on the main episode, thank you very much, patrons. And let me also say, if you would like to become one, you can go to patreon.com and look for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And you'll not only get the warm feeling in your heart of, of, of supplying me with this, um, this almost almost professional quality. It's the kind of microphone that the, 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 the big boys use. I think Joe Rogan has more expensive ones, but I'm pretty sure it's fairly, it's, it's, it's what most of the podcasters it use. It is the ubiquitous microphone of the podcaster. It is the Blue Yeti, which is not a dance by Suzanne Paul, but could be. So if you'd, if you'd like that good feeling, and also if you would like to get access to these bonus episodes that only our patrons get to listen to, then, then sign on up. Um, but if you don't want to become a patron, that's fine. Also, you're, you're part of our audience, and we, we love and respect you. Equal, no, actually not equally. We do like the patrons better. Let's be honest. It's true. They, are, they are the most yeah. beautiful. They are the best. But we, we, we still like you just fine, though. Um, so unless you have anything to add i i think we can call this episode done yes i think i think after discussion of the sexist conspiracy theory and then a discussion of curtis's paper we can call this podcast to a close in that case all that remains is for me to say goodbye and for me to say goodbye Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. MRX Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it. So, a new patron and an interesting new problem. How so? Well, this is one of the patrons we don't usually speak about in the intro, given our strangely capitalist... But cheap! 
the system of charging more for a measly appearance in one intro, um, but we typically refer to new patients who don't, patients, let's, let's try that again. <laughs> 